Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today our very special guest is Allison Weir. Miss Weir is the biggest selling female historian and the fifth biggest selling historian in the UK. She's published over 30 titles and sold, believe it or not, more than 3 million books. Welcome, Allison. Hi, Deb. Let's chat about you for a minute. Your bio is so impressive. How would you describe yourself? Someone who's got a passion for history. (laughs) Absolutely, no doubt. Well, what about your new book, The Last White Rose, a novel of Elizabeth York? Yes, it's about the mother. She is the she was the mother of Henry VIII, the wife of Henry VII, the sister of the princes in the tower, and that alone gives enough fodder for a novel. It's it's an incredible story, a sort of a riches to rags to riches story. She appears to be one of your favourites. What is it about her story that draws you in? It's the enigmas in her story that draw me. She was the sister of the princes in the tower who the evidence is strong that her uncle, Richard III, had them murdered, but that's contested. But what did she herself think about it? What did she know? It must have tortured her. She was close to her brothers and sisters, and she must have had a terrible time worrying what had happened to them. And then when pretenders emerged in Henry VII's reign, pretended to be one of the princes, what did she think? Did she worry that this was really, really her brother? Or, and if he was... He would be a threat to her husband and her children in the succession. So she was in a difficult position. And then there are, there are other mysteries involved with her that was she did, did she really push for a marriage to her uncle Richard III in, in the knowledge that he might have murdered her brothers? It seems incredible. And yet the evidence we have, controversial though it is, suggests that she did. And then when he publicly rejected her, because it was thought that this marriage would be too scandalous, he was her uncle after all, she then, it seems like hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, she then, if we believe a popular contemporary ballad, threw her weight behind Henry Tudor, the uh, you know the, the claimant to the throne who was languishing in Brittany, and helped to raise an army for him. Oh, all new information for me. Thank you very okay. much for that. You capture her so vividly. She's portrayed as an English princess born into a war between two families that you just mentioned. Yes. Let's talk about some of the events which possibly changed her, beginning with the death of her father, Edward IV. Can you give us insight into how his early death changed the princess? Yes. I mean, the change was dramatic because he died at 42 and it was totally unexpected. He died after catching a chill or influenza, pneumonia, whatever. It was very, it was very quick illness. Failed to reconcile the two power centres in his court. His brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who became Richard III, and his wife's family, the Whitfields, because they were very unpopular. They were seen as jumped up upstarts. So um, he hadn't reconciled these two opposing factions. 
And the when he died, the Whitvilles were in control of the royal children, the, the royal treasure, the tower, the, the royal armouries, uh, the fleet, the, the royal treasure. They were completely in control. But Gloucester mounted a very swift coup in connection with two other nobles. He marched down south from Yorkshire, where he was, seized control of the young king with the fourth successor, Edward V, and, and came with him to London. And, the, and Elizabeth Whitville, um, Elizabeth York's mother, fled with her younger children into sanctuary at Westminster Abbey because clearly she realised that she, Richard was a threat to her. And he thought she was a threat to him. So you can see why he made this preemptive strike. So Elizabeth was plunged from, from the, this, this, this magnificent world of the, the royal palaces and that into the abbot's house at Westminster Abbey, not a dungeon, not a prison, not a grotty cell or anything, but somewhere where she was confined for the best part of the next year. Her parents' marriage was declared invalid and on a, on a very flimsy pretext that her father had been pre-contracted to someone else when he married her mother. And then all the real children were declared bastards and the next heir was Richard of Gloucester. Who, who was offered the throne as Richard III. Well, let's take a minute to talk about Richard III. How do you feel about the way history has portrayed him? Well, hist- I mean, for centuries, the general view was that, yes, Richard, the traditional uh, version of events, w- was the true one. His contemporaries, there wasn't much doubt in the minds of his contemporaries that he had ordered the, the removal of the princes. The controversy at that time was how it had been done. And this, this remained the view until the 17th century, when there are one or two voices raised to query this story. And there's one or two in each century since, until you get to 1951 and the publication of Josephine Tay's wonderful novel, The Daughter of Time, in which a, a police officer who's in hospital sees a portrait of Richard III and thinks this man looks so nice he can't have possibly committed a murder, and then deconstructs the evidence. It's fascinating stuff. I read it when I was 15, it had a huge impression on me. And um, and since then, with the founding of the Richard III Society, and then with the discovery of Richard's bones, the debate hasn't really, and it's still raging today. Oh, it's definitely raging. I know in All Things Tudor, we have discussions and debates about it almost on a daily basis. So that's very much with us today. In in your book, The Last White Rose, Richard III attempts to marry Elizabeth of York, and you mentioned that a minute ago. Can you expound on this anymore? Yes, I mean he. The evidence is pretty is pretty strong because we, it comes from one of the royal councillors who wrote the what, the Croyland Chronicle, one of the major sources for his reign, and he said that he, you know, he supposed he had good grounds for an annulment. He was already married at the time, or well, his wife was ill actually. She died the following March, and after this Christmas, when Elizabeth appears at court wearing the same clothes as the Queen, this is unheard of. It caused a scandal because there are strict laws governing uh, the dress that each rank could wear, and for the bastardised daughter of a former king to wear the same gown as the queen is 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 something that would un, would understandably drew comment. And then we have this letter that she that was seen by George Buck, one of Richard's biographers, in the 17th century. It was in the collection of his patron, the Earl of Arundel, and he says that in it she he doesn't actually quote all the text, but he says that she is uh, urging the Duke of Norfolk to make suit for her to the king, basically to hurry this marriage forward. And, and she is his in heart, in body, in thought, and all. And you're thinking, my goodness, you know, why? Because all the rumour has ruined, has eroded Richard's support. Most people think he took out her brothers. But the answer is that she had been a year in sanctuary 
Her mother couldn't impose on the abbot's hospitality anymore. It was a, the, the abbey was surrounded by a ring of steel, basically. It was under siege. And this was the only way to guarantee a good future for her, her, her mother and her sisters. And she, of course, would be a queen, which she should have been anyway. If her brothers were dead, then she was the rightful queen of England, queen regnant. Very good point. So on the Richard Third topic, this really affected the young Elizabeth. Oh yes, I think it affected her profoundly, and I think she was. I think she was. She so felt this 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 sort of drop in status. It, it was shameful and humiliating that she was determined to wrest something back. And so I can understand the thinking behind this letter. But then we've got this other controversial source. Once Richard has, his advisors have got to him and, and said, "You." with this marriage, it's too scandalous, too uncertain. And of course, if he marries her, he's then acknowledging basically that she is the true heiress of York because kings don't marry bastards in this period. And so, you know, it, for him to marry her would be an admission that um, her, her brothers were dead. He couldn't afford to do that. And so he publicly repudiated the idea that he never crossed his mind. Well, I'm not so sure about that. But then we have this ballad and it's called The Song of Lady Bessie. And it describes how she throws her weight behind Henry Tudor. She joins with his stepfather, Lord Stanley, and other and, and other, other his, his supporters and helps to raise troops. And she's proactive in this, even though she's warned he could see her convicted of treason and burned at the stake. Now, is it true? There's a lot of detail in this. It's written by Lord Stanley's squire, Humphrey Brereton, who'd served Edward IV. And there's perhaps the, the detail in Humphrey Brereton's role in it is overstated, but there's a lot of authentic detail in it. So I think there's a core of truth in it. Let's circle around to the princes of the Tower, in the Tower. You mentioned that. They were Elizabeth of York's brothers, and they appear to have been lost to history. Did this transform Elizabeth of York in any way? We don't know, but it must have done. We don't have a written record, but it must have made her, it, it must have been shattering for her. She saw her mother's grief and the younger, the, the older prince was placed in the, in the Royal Palace of the Tower of London when he was brought to London. The king, that was King Edward V. And that was, there was nothing sinister about that because traditionally monarchs lodged there before their coronations and it had been one of his father's favourite palaces. So no problem there. But the Queen had with her in sanctuary his younger brother, Richard Duke of York, and her five daughters, including Elizabeth. She was the eldest. And Richard literally demanded that she give up. He, he sent in the Archbishop of Canterbury to take the boy away from her to join his brother in the tower. And so York was taken away, and he, that, that's the, how they became the princes in the tower. So Elizabeth must have worried in this situation. And goodness knows how this tormented her ever after, because by that autumn, um, that was in June, he was taken away, and Richard became king in July, or the end of June, it was crowned in July. And by the autumn, Rumours were rife that the princes were dead and a rebellion was mounted to put Henry Tudor on the throne and it failed. Um, he came back and invaded two years later. But the, but, but the fact is she must have believed, all the people who were involved in the rebellion believed that the princes were dead. It must have been devastating. Mm, had to be, had to be. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. 
Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Let's talk about The Last White Rose. It's the beginning of a new trilogy, which is very exciting. What can we expect from this captivating new trio of novels? It's a generational trilogy. So the first novel is about Elizabeth. The second novel, which I nearly finished, is about her son, Henry VIII. No pressure there. And the third (laughs) novel is about his daughter, Mary I, or Bloody Mary, as she's popularly known. So it's 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 quite a dramatic saga because I mean Henry VIII's life is dramatic anyway. Six wives, hello. <laughs> he instituted the Reformation in England, you know, and he's a larger than life character. Elizabeth is the foundress of the dynasty with, with Henry the Seventh. You know, her marriage to Henry the Seventh united the red and the white roses of Lancaster and York and brought, brought an end to the Wars of the Roses. And of course, in their son, that bloodline was combined. He was the living embodiment of that union of Lancaster and York. But he still felt very much beleaguered by his Yorkist relatives and his felt his security was threatened by them. So that's all part of the story. It's a huge saga and the biggest challenge is what to include and what not to include in the, in the word count I've been allowed. It <laughs> <laughs> has to hold you back. Definitely. It's constraining, put it like that. I want to create all sorts of scenes, but, um, you know, you have to rein yourself in. I suspect it will be longer than than it's been commissioned for, but I will have to go back and cut, which I hate doing. And then Mary I is a very sad and also dramatic story. This is the woman who was, she was the victim of her parents' divorce uh, as she was a child. And she grew up a rather unhappy lady. All, all talks of marriages for her came to nothing. She was bastardised. And eventually she came to the throne, but only after, you know, the coup tried to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne, which she overthrew through popular support. And then in 1553, she became queen. Uh, she married Philip of Spain, and then she was determined to restore the Catholic faith and return England to the fold of Rome, as it, you know, being Henry VIII had broken with Rome. And she brought back the heresy law. She burned nearly 300 Protestants. And that's why she is remembered as Bloody Mary. Some historians are trying to look at, take a revisionist view of her nowadays, but you cannot get away from what she did. Very good point. And there is, no pun intended, a true renaissance for Mary the First right now. And a lot of people are coming to her defense. So I'm interested to see what, what you have to write about it. Well, as a historian, I, I, I can understand. I mean, I, I can feel a lot of sympathy for Mary as a person. I'm horrified, and this is a very modern viewpoint, that she would send all those people to such a horrific death. But you have to remember that she, as a, as a, as a devout Catholic, would have seen that would have believed that giving them a foretaste of hellfire on earth might make them recant at the last. And yet that doesn't ride with what actually happened because... Um, if you recanted once, you were allowed another chance. If you re- if you then backslid and you know you reverted to heresy, it was the stake. There was no there was no comeback on that. But in some cases, people weren't even given a chance. I mean, people were being were being burned because they didn't know the Lord's Prayer. There's an awful case in Jersey where one one woman was a pregnant woman was in the fire and her baby was born and they threw it into the fire. I mean, you get. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the Queen's own order. But it was Mary's policy that led to this kind of thing. 
She was definitely torn between two worlds, wasn't she? Oh, she was. And when Philip of Spain was blamed for it a lot, because, of course, he came from Spain where there was the Inquisition. And um, But he actually, he he and Mary's hard, even her hardline ministers, urged to cool down the burnings because of the reaction to them. And so, so she ordered instead that they take place early in the morning to stop public demonstration. She wouldn't, she wouldn't hold back on it. Oh, my goodness. I did not know that. You can see... Um, why Elizabeth I, she was succeeded by her half-sister Elizabeth in 1558. And you can see why Elizabeth I's accession day was celebrated for nearly 200 years afterwards in England. Ah, uh-huh. so that explains a lot right there. Thank you. It does. Well, Alison, you're such a prolific writer of fiction and nonfiction. What led to your love of history and especially Tudor history? Well, my mother marched me into a library when I was 14 and said, get a book. <laughs> because I graduated from books to comics and pop magazines. And um, I got this, uh, mooch around this adult library, very bored, until I saw this rather lurid cover of, of called Henry's Golden Queen, this, this novel. And I, had, I, and I thought, well, that looks interesting. And it was about Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. And I devoured it in two days and I was absolutely hooked. And when I went back to school, I went, to, I went to the City of London School, they had an excellent school library. I started delving around in the history books to find out what really happened. Well, we're very thankful that happened. Thank you. You do an amazing series of talks and lectures, which I have to speak for most of the Americans in All Things Tudor. We are so jealous because you do these great lectures live. And um, I understand you have an upcoming event at the Chalk Valley History Festival. I do. Yes, that's right. Looking forward to it. Can you share some insight into your presentation there? Yes, I'm actually going to be talking about women in history, writing about women in history with Philippa Gregory, the novelist. And the event is for is sponsored for, it's before the Duchess of Cornwall's Reading Room website, because the Duchess of Cornwall likes to support reading and authors and you know and books. So I'm very I feel very privileged to be doing it. Well, you definitely are. What what day can we expect this? It's on Monday, the 20th of June at 3.45 p.m. at the Chalk Valley History Festival, Rediscovering Women in History, and I'll be in conversation with Philippa Gregory. What an amazing team, and so many of us wish we could be there. (laughs) It's a first. (laughs) Really looking forward to it. We are looking forward to your next book, and please be a guest again on All Things Tudor. It's been wonderful speaking with you and having you here today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Deb. It's very kind of you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much for your time and have a great day. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.